Hi, hello. Welcome back to episode 10 of Trail Society. My name is Corinne Malcolm. I'm Keely Henninger. And I'm Hillary Allen. I can't believe we're in double digits. <laughs> We've done it. I think everyone's in their proper homes right now, too, which does not happen very often with this group. Yay. We are. Yeah. Except I feel like I should be in the mountain town and not in Portland because I'm covered in clothing, but it is cold here and raining. So that's my case. Yeah. It, it was cold here today too. I think the heat kicked on in our house for the first time, maybe ever. <laughs> um, so I went to sleep in socks last night. It's a balmy 55 degrees in the Bay area and the outer sunset that feels super cold by Bay area standards. You can fall asleep with socks on. I can't do that either. Oh yeah, we well, can't do that. We'll talk about a sleep that? episode. We'll talk about this. Sleep <laughs> hygiene, man. Well, we can have a conversation about this in a couple episodes. <laughs> I like it. If I fall asleep with socks on, I wake up two or three hours later dripping in sweat and have to take them off. <laughs> I also have this weird thing where I like I cannot be touching anything anything and like definitely another human being. I can't do it or else I cannot sleep. Parts. King size beds for all. It's okay. Yes. We'll be fine. We'll get a mattress sponsor and then we'll be good to go. Um, I think to start off, we've got a bunch of fun announcements before we dive into kind of a meaty topic for today. And the biggest one is that we're brought to you by someone else. We're brought to you by Free Trail. Um, I feel like Keely's probably most in the in the free trail realm, being in Portland herself. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on with? the rebrand from pillars or pilars, like we like to call it to, to free trail. <laughs> totally. So we've obviously always been working with pillars to create this show. And Dylan was kind of the, the like spark plug to getting us all to be together and start this show, but they just rebranded recently to free trail and free trails kind of the, the reasoning behind rebranding to free trail was to specialize and to become the like be all end all trail, like um, digital interface for trail runners. And so they want to be bringing in a lot of new things. And so we'll kind of keep you guys updated as that comes to fruition, because obviously it's still in the planning phase, but they have a lot of really cool things planned for us. And it's going to become a really cool trail running specific um, spot for all of the things you guys need to know. So yeah, I think we're super, super excited. I was just thinking as we were talking about our relationship with Dylan and, and Pillars Now Free Trail, do you think Dylan would get super uncomfortable if we started referring to him only as our sugar daddy <laughs> for being, for being the, the, the guy, the guy in charge in a lot of ways, not, he's not in charge of us. I don't think you could boss any of us around. Hillary's looking like definitely not Dylan cannot tell me what to do. Um, but I think there, yeah, like it's, we, I think we had a meeting last week all together, the whole team. And I think we all left it feeling incredibly optimistic and excited about what the future holds. So we will keep you updated um, as we know what we're doing, we'll keep some secrets though going. I think to me, the biggest announcement before we get to race announcements and some other stuff is that our queen, my personal hero, Magda Boulay was named the president of goo energy labs. Like so how cool. can we talk about being a boss bitch? That <laughs> is so cool. So Magda, for those of you who are less familiar has been with goo since 1999 um, she ran for the U.S. Um, in the marathon in the 2008 Olympics. She's won Western State. She's won Leadville. She's won Marathon de Sobs. She's my personal hero. Um, and she's been the head of research and development for Goo for a long time. And she was named the president. 
um, right ahead of Thanksgiving, I think. And I like legit teared up when I got the email about it. So we are so, so happy and so stoked for Magda and like getting, getting a lady in that role is so, so cool. Totally. I know you said it the best crunch. I'm just so happy for Magda. And I think, I think it's a, it's a great thing for our sport. Does anyone, I'll take our two, I think we've got two race updates that I know of that were kind of big news items since the last yeah. time we talked. The yeah, first I'll take, being, I can take yeah. some of them. First being another, another queen, Courtney DeWalter. She, I had a Kim so impressed. She ended her season with another win at um, Ultra Trail Cape Town. Um, fast. Yeah. And I mean, and the field, it was super fast. Um, and, but I would also say that uh, Marianne Hogan, um, she actually used to live in Boulder. She's quite fast herself. You know, she was second. At, I remember I read her post and she's like, I'll finish to Courtney DeWalter any day. <laughs> um, so that was really cute. It was still a strong, a strong field out there. I mean, uh, Ultra Trail Cape Town usually brings a pretty strong field and she finished within the top 10, I believe eighth, seventh, seventh. Fast. And, I, and I think there was some banter after the race that, you know, the live, the live coverage couldn't identify, um, Rianne Hogan very well at the mm. beginning, they considered her a dark horse. And I was like, man, if you don't know her name, you've been living under a rock because this girl is fast. I met her a number of years ago at a Solomon, uh, trail Academy camp and was, well, she was my roommate there and was just super, super impressed with her. She's had her fair share of injuries. And I think she'd be the first to open up about those. Um, but yeah, to see her finish second to Courtney DeWalter, I like, I fear for the rest of us next year. Cause if she's healthy. <laughs> She's a force to be reckoned with out yeah, there. The other race news that I found was um, most recently this past weekend was the USA track and field hundred mile trail championships. Our national championship series don't necessarily get the deepest fields, um, but they're still national championship titles. And that's super, super cool. And I think very impressive to have won any of those um, and a super young athlete coached by Pat Regan, she was third there last year. She won the thing this year in third overall at 25 years old. Um, Kaylee, and I do not know how you say your last name, Kaylee. I'm really sorry about that. Um, but I saw your name last year to see you crowned as the victor this year, third overall in 1502. Cool. And I saw video footage of her at mile 99 and she was flying. So I'd say world watch out, like so, so cool to see some young guns just throwing down really, really impressive times on some of this like flatter, faster terrain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she actually was racing in the hundred K road championships back, uh, a couple of months ago, I believe it was in October and she was very public about her experience with, um, Rabdo, right. Yep. yep. And, um, so she like really went to the well there and had some serious implications there that she had to go to the hospital afterwards, but was very like humble about it and posted about it saying like, Hey, this sport is really hard and you really need to do your due diligence to like fuel and, and hydrate during these crazy events that we're doing, especially when the like environmental, like gods that be throw something really crazy at you and you're not expecting it. And so it's really cool to see her being really open about these, like these, um, shortcomings during some races. And then obviously learning from things she's done wrong and absolutely crushing it in the most recent race. So, that's yeah, so, so, so cool. I think we're going to see more from her. I bet I'd love to see her at Havelina next year. I think that'd be really cool to get her in a field like that on that style of terrain. Cause she seems to be really into this flatter, faster stuff. So that would be in my mind, just like what a perfect that I, that would be beautiful. So I will all uh, text your coach, see what we can make happen <laughs> for next year. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, in other news, I've been getting a lot of messages from some of the fans of the show asking us if we're going to go into the most recent news from USATF, um, who just launched the, or I guess who just released the A standards for the 2024 marathon Olympic qualifiers for both men and women. And, um, yeah, so they've dropped the times for both men and women. Um, but most notably they, they dropped the woman's a qualifier time for the marathon from two forty-five to two thirty-seven. So they dropped is, it by eight, eight minutes. This is because though, that the, like going into the Tokyo Olympics, the Olympic committee, the international Olympic committee also dropped the Olympic qualifying time to this time. So the U S can never have a standard that is faster than that as the basic standard for trials. So this to me says that we will not have a B, a B standard for trials. This to me says, cause you cannot have a standard that's like, like I guess they could in a way say, okay, if you run a 240, you can come. But my guess is that this is the standard to qualify for trials. Well, um, there's, there's they actually legal, they had a legal trouble yeah. last time because of this. There's actually mm -hmm. exceptions though, for, for some countries where you can get a rite of passage for your first, your top three to go to the Olympics, regardless if they meet the Olympic qualifier. So they had to do that. So that was not in place at trials in going, going into trials in February and they panicked and they put it into place because the Olympic standard was lowered so much. Uh -huh. going like ahead of trials. People had already qualified for trials and then the Olympic and international Olympic committee announced that new standard. And so I don't think that it will be a standard protocol for us to have that in place uh -huh. at trials. And it was granted to the U S very last minute. So that like, I think is a really interesting, that, that was very interesting going into trials this time around. And they, I don't think we're going to see a B standard. They do still have a half marathon standard, which is still very fast. I think it's 112 mm -hmm. for women, but that's like, what's the minute per mile pace? Like that's insane. A 112 is a 535, I believe per mile. And then a, two, a 237 is a five, basically right at six minute pace. It's slightly under. So you can't really be averaging six minute pace. You need to be like a little bit under 59. That's, that's. Wicked fast. That's it's really, fast. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, regardless of the reasons for, for lowering it, right. That was an eight minute drop from the most, the 2020 trials, which is 19 seconds per mile difference mm -hmm. per mile for 26 miles. Right. Um, and so for reference, like the previous qualifier was a 243, And so it had increased by two minutes, but basically going back to the 243 would have been like equivalent of the 2016 trial. And so they, they didn't just go to 243. They dropped again, another six minutes from the even previous, um, a standard for the, for the trials or sorry, B standard for the trials. And so it's just interesting that they went down that extreme. So, I mean, I can, I can see, I can see why they did. Right. Because if we're, if we're looking at, if we're looking at, you know, trying to have Americans, you know, be represented in the Olympics and have a shot at, you know, some medals, right. I mean, 237 isn't even close to that. Like you'd have to be under 237. So I, I see why they're trying to lower the time to kind of like, we were talking about this before, like Corinne, like you have three friends who got under uh, 237 at the CIM this past weekend. And it's like, it's kind of like putting that hope. It's like, well, if they did it, like I can, I've trained with them, like maybe I can too. And I think that that's, that can be a really positive thing from this. Um, but also totally. it cut a significant amount of the, of the field. Totally. So, yeah. yeah. And I, I don't think anybody ever went into the trial saying that those who run a 240 
459 are going to make the Olympics. Right. Like, I don't think that's necessarily the point. I think they, they made it larger so that they could get more women into the trials and kind of build momentum that way. And I think a big thing of the 2020 Olympic trials was that a lot of people were socializing that they were making it. And it was like this snowball effect where all mm-hmm. of a sudden other women who maybe never thought they'd have a chance were like, Oh, well, if she did, I could do it. And if they can do it, I can do it. And it was like this snowball effect. And it was really good for women's elite running, right. To, yeah. to mm-hmm. have this for women's, for women's, women's running in general, right. Like just I, I've mm-hmm. never run a road marathon. I may never run a road marathon, mm-hmm. but I got excited about Olympic trials and the marathon. And I thought to myself for at least a day, maybe two days, oh, maybe I want to run a marathon, (laughs) like do a marathon build up in the next three years just to like see, see if I could like run, you know, sub three, sub 245, sub 237, whatever it might be. Like that, that piqued my interest just because it was normalized amongst amongst our peers, amongst our friends. Mm-hmm. The big totally. thing, like one of the big things that with having 500 women qualify, I think Atlanta, when they set it up, when we've had an A and a B standard in the past, they've said, okay, A standard athletes get full support to come to trials. We'll, we'll, we put them up. We're going to pay, you know, we're paying for their hotel. We pay for their flight, et cetera. B standard oftentimes does not get that support. They get some support, but not full. I think Atlanta was like, we're going to support everyone. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden they had 500 plus women qualify for trials and they couldn't afford Mm-hmm. to do that. And so that like that's a really interesting conundrum because event organizers event organizers have to decide like what's equitable, right? Mm-hmm. Too like how can you support everyone? Where do you decide to stop supporting people? Um do you only support the unsponsored athletes and hope that the sponsored athletes will have their sponsors actually like take care of them like they should? Like it's a very interesting conundrum and I think that's part of that was a huge part of this conversation I have no doubt. Mm-hmm. about setting up because that like puts stress on the rest of the let's call it the ecosystem that goes on at trials how many feed zones do you have to have how many tables and volunteers with bottles do you have to have because you got to have standardized feed zones if it's really really hot for example um not not in atlanta the trials before that in la they needed to get extra neutral water on course they needed to get soapy sponges out on course. And then the, the sponges they bought happened to be pre-soaked with soap for some reason. And so they were giving these athletes sponges, like cold water sponges that were had soap in it. So it's like, there's a lot like, yes, like I want 500 women at trials, but I understand that the ecosystem has to support that. So do you, totally. do you separate them? Do you say this is our men's trial race and this is our women's trial race? Like yeah. two different races support trials, for example. Mm-hmm. Totally. Or is it just the matter of the fact is we swung a little too far one direction and now we're swinging, in my opinion, a little too far the other direction because we're going from over 500 women to qualifying to, if we look at those numbers who qualified at that 237 mark or under, we're going down to 90. So we're reducing by like 80%, Mm -hmm. right? Whereas like, that's a very large difference, right? And then if we look at the men, if we're decreasing the men's time, it's projected to only decrease the men's field by about 35%. So it's going from 260 men to about 170 men. So it's, it's again, just glaringly obvious that all of a sudden we're going to have this disproportionate again, ratio between men and women, where there's now double the amount of men in the trials than the amount of women. And so, so yeah, to me, that my question, sense. do you think though, that the women's standard was too soft before? I think, I think it was 247 to yeah. 245 to 242, yeah. 243. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's like, maybe there's some e- like equidistance there that we could split in the middle. Mm-hmm. Someone, I think um, it was a professional male athlete posted on Twitter saying, you know, what about if we just allowed the fastest 200 men and 200 women 
into trials. That would mean that the very last qualifier race might mean that if you're on the bubble, if you're say 180 on the bubble at CIM, we've had 20, 30, 40 qualifiers before as you know. And so it's like, you know, it would be very exciting because you wouldn't know if you're going to trials maybe, but the people who are in the top hundred, the people who are probably most likely to make the team, they'd be safe. It would be the bubble athletes who wouldn't be sure if they were in that top 200 or not. But would that, would that standardize the fields? Would that allow you to have even distribution, even support on course? You'd allow the race organizers to know exactly how many runners were coming and how many runners they had to support and budget for that appropriately. Like, I don't think that there's like a perfect answer or right answer. And I think we're all kind of like grasping for that right now. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I mean, we could say like, oh, we should have went back to the old standard 243 and then subtracted a minute like we did for the men. And like, you know, I'm sure that's some people's answer. And that would have actually reduced the field to about 50%. So <laughs> would have been about similar to the men's at that point. So like, yeah, it's just, it's very interesting. And then my other thought around this is just looking at some of the demographics of women who qualify for the trials. Um, it was kind of like a shock to me, but 92% are white. Um, and then almost half have a family in, or a household income of over a hundred thousand dollars. And so I guess my question for you guys, and then just my, my thought around this is like, what is cutting this down even further do for like this already non-diverse group of women? And like, is that something we should worry about? Yeah. The equity there. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is concerning. I mean, I think, I think running, you know, running for, for leisure and for pleasure, and especially for sport is definitely an indication of how affluent a community or a household is. Um, and so I think this could, you know, this could, this could skew it, you know, even, even further. Right. And, you know, someone who, I mean, to, I mean, I've run a road marathon. It was really hard I've run two. <laughs> like it takes a lot of concentration and it's like a lot of, you know, it's like a full-time job. And, and I think in order to have kind of the resources in order to do that, like some of the most inspiring women I know, like, you know, they're, they're full-time athletes and, and training like hell, but, you know, I think it's, uh, I think it's going to be harder for more women and more people in general to kind of get into the sport if this continues to, you know, cutting it in that way, mm-hmm. but maybe yeah. an opportunity for kind of like, you know, other like programs and sponsors to, you know, engage the community and kind of find, you know, the next, the next up and coming runner. Right. I think, I don't know. I think women are pretty good at that too. Like drawing on their community and building each other up. Yeah. I think we've saw a lot of, a lot of women in trials who were moms who were, we had two women at least who were actively pregnant at trials in Atlanta, which is really cool. I don't think either one finished the race. Someone will (laughs) correct us if we're wrong for sure, but it was really cool to see them. One was one at least was very pregnant, but she'd qualified and she wanted to be there and it was amazing. Um, but I do think that women come into high level sport oftentimes after having a career. We see this in professional cycling all the time. You've got ex ex finance people, ex lawyers. Um, maybe they're still practicing law or still working in finance a little bit, but we see that way more in women's sport, particularly women's Olympic sport, than we do in men's Olympic sport. When I was on the national team for biathlon, for example, I was the only female without a college degree. And I think there was one male on the team who had a college degree. And it's just like, that was in part because like, it wasn't, it wasn't deemed like an appropriate use of my time to go into full-time athletics as a, as a female versus as a male athlete. So I think that's like, I think that is probably similar threads here, right. When we talk about 
equity and mm-hmm. equality in the sport. And even getting women into sport, right? A lot yeah. of women end up taking breaks because they didn't have the correct mentorship and, you know, and even, and we're talking about the marathon, you know, that takes time to build, right? And if mm-hmm. you get burnt out after having a bad experience running track or a 5k, you know, yeah. what, why would you want to run more? Right. And I mean, we can't forget too, that like, it was hardly a half a person ago that, we were just allowed to run in the Olympics and we were trying to get women running more. Right. And so to me, it feels a little like silly to all of a sudden be cutting it down even further when we're still like in our infancy with, with female runners to begin with. Um, but good news is women are definitely getting faster, right? So there's definitely hope with this decrease in the trials qualifier, like looking at trends over the the course of the past, like 10 years, the top 50 fastest U S women's marathon times are now trending to be above 240, or sorry, below 240, so that they are like, you know, well-equipped to, to hit that standard. It's just, um, yeah. I, I always think that like you can, you have to swing the pendulum a little too far, especially in these like underrepresented groups to try to level that playing field. And then maybe you can swing it back after you let it kind of come back to that middle ground. But yeah, we'll see one, one, I mean, we'll, we'll know more as you all knew, know more, but I'm hoping for some creative solutions mm-hmm. on this as far as, you know, making the field as big and as strong as possible. So we'll see what happens. I think we're in a, pivot conversation now over to our topic for today, which I think is a very important topic over the past, I mean, several months at this point, which is so cool. Um, We've got to touch on a lot of really important topics, including relative energy deficiency in sport or red S disordered eating and body image issues. And we heard from many of you, you reached out and you shared your personal stories with us, which was incredibly touching to get to, to hear from the listeners about these topics. And we got a lot of messages from male athletes and from non-binary athletes saying, you know, this is more than a women's issue. Um, and it like, I don't know, I think we're really excited to broaden that conversation beyond it being about women in part because this big broad topic of red S was designed in fact to incorporate more than women, more than the female athlete triad. So that's what we're going to dig in today into today with a special guest. And so I'm wondering before we introduce our guest, if you, if one of you can, can you walk us through what Red S is and how that incorporates male athletes under that umbrella term? Okay. So yeah, I'll take it. Um, so some of you might remember the episode, uh, that we talked about, uh, Red S. So this is relative energy deficiency in sport. Um, and so if you need a refresher and want to listen to us again, uh, you can go back and listen to that one, but basically, um, you know, this can kind of be misdiagnosed as, um, you know, overtraining. Um, but you know, it's certainly related. I think the main theme that we talk about with relative energy deficiency in sport is we're talking about, underfueling. And this is kind of more, yes, in the short term, but more sort of the long term. Um, and so, yeah. And so I think for this, I mean, it's, we're not really sure the exact numbers, right. In, in, in men that, um, that this goes into, but it's certainly underreported. We do know that it's, it's 25% more likely in male lean athletes. Um, and, there's all of these other things that kind of happen with relative energy deficiency in sport, right? It's not, so when you're under fueling, it can lead to hormone dysregulation, issues of bone health, bone density. So really long-term, um, long-term factors. Um, and so 
we can, we've talked about kind of our own experiences in this, um, you know, in that last episode, but I think it's really interesting to get a male's perspective on this and that, you know, this isn't just a female issue in sport. Totally. Can you, I was gonna say, did we miss anything there on Red S? Anything you want to add before you, uh, you take the next question? <laughs> well, I just think it's, it's interesting when you think about Red S in males versus females, right? Because this is the first, uh, disorder, in my opinion, that got a lot of public attention for females before it got attention for males, which is kind of interesting. Um, and so for males, I think it's very underrepresented in the literature. Like we don't know how many males are impacted by this because the struggles aren't as straightforward as they are for females. Like we do have our menstrual cycle that tells us that we have normally regulating hormones. Males don't quite have that. And so when we do look at the literature, it is like, anywhere from three to 70% prevalence in male athletes. And so what does that mean? Range, right. Like I didn't even know you could publish something like that <laughs> from, we don't know if it exists to it exists everywhere is what that yeah. range says to me. Exactly. So if it's not talked about in the literature, why isn't it, why aren't male athletes part of this conversation? Why have they been left out of this conversation? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, from some of the call, the talks I've had just over the past, I'd say, it's, it's like the narrative that men are, are given when they're born and as they grow up as children that like they're supposed to be strong, right? And they're not supposed to show weaknesses and they're supposed to win at all costs. And, and typically coaches use this win at all costs mentality as like their performance metrics. So it's never like, oh, you must train this way to get to this performance. They're more just like, get to this performance, whatever way you can. And we don't care what that way is, but you guys are strong and you are males. And so don't show me your weakness, just kind of get to this performance level. And I don't really care how you get there. And, and that's kind of me hyperbolizing it all. Obviously, like that's a little bit extreme, but that would be like my guess as to why it's not talked about as much for males. And, and they don't want to talk about it because it's a sign of weakness. And also I think males, they can generally handle more training stress and training load than women. And so I think it's kind of that, like, you know, pile it on and, you know, see, see if you break, you know, it's kind of like, there's, there's a, there's a, you know, the strength if you don't break. Right. And yeah. even though maybe inside something else is happening, there's less immediate repercussions for right. male athletes, particularly like their testosterone is a more robust totally. hormone as opposed to women's effect from hormonal dysregulation is much more apparent, much quicker. Um, there's some resiliency to test to testosterone. It appears. So Kelly, while you were traveling, um, Keely and I were able to sit down with a very special guest um, to do a little interview. And I'm wondering if you could tell everyone a little bit about um, who we are talking to today. Oh, yeah, I had the chance to listen to the to the interview, and I'm so uh, thrilled to share with everyone. Um, so uh, we all are interviewing. Uh, no, Keely and Corinne got to interview, but hopefully I'll get to comment on um, interviewing Logan Williams. He's a professional runner for Solomon and Satisfy Running. Um, he was born and raised in Reno, Tahoe area, um, and he's now returned to work as an attorney. Uh, so I met Logan um, at in Tahoe, actually, at uh, the Broken Arrow Sky Race. And I met him actually before that at Lake Sonoma. Keely, did he finish right behind you or in front of you? Behind me. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Logan. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, he, uh, I met him at Sonoma as well. And then afterwards I was just kind of like, we started following each other on Instagram. You know how the story goes. Yeah. And one of his more recent posts was actually this very, very well-written, 
um, post around his relationship with body image and eating disorder. And so, um, after our episode on red S, he actually reached out to me and was like, this episode is amazing. It transcends gender. Like I found it very, very helpful for all of my struggles. And I'm like, going to share it with a lot of people. I know, let me know if you ever want to talk to me about it as like a male perspective, because like, I would love to share my story with you guys, um, and, and lend any insight I can from my perspective and my experience. And so Corinne and I and Hillary, we all kind of were like, okay, let's jump on this experience. Right. And like get his opinion, because I don't know about you guys, but after our episode on Red S, um, I got a good amount of, of DMs from men in our community saying like, mm-hmm. wow, I never thought about it this way. Like, I think I might be going through some of these things. And it was just like a very cool um, community kind of like rumble from from that episode. Yeah, I think it's I think it's cool. And I think it's I think this is how we normalize this conversation. This is how we bring men into this conversation. It's how we model this in that community. It's how you at home can take this into your community and model this for the your your cohort, your colleagues, your peers, the your children, uh, your children's friends that you're coaching, whatever it might be. I think this is a really important thing to kind of be able to wrap our heads around. But before we dive into this interview with Logan, it's really, really important for us to tell you right now that this is a hard conversation to listen to. Um, this is Logan sharing his personal experience. So it's not going to be a conversation for everyone. We discuss body image and disordered eating in a male athlete. We talk about, you know, he shares his story about purging, about his relationship with weight and size. It's it's very raw and it's very real, but it's not going to be a conversation for everyone. So if you are struggling with this and you know that these topics are a trigger for you, we encourage you to join us next episode. We inter- encourage you to fast forward to the end of this episode, but it's a really important conversation for us to share, but that is, it's really important for you to do what you need to do what's best for you. And we want you to know that we are now diving into this very raw, very real conversation around body image and disordered eating with Logan Williams. You yourself reached out to Keely and me and you said, Hey, like I've, I've been there, I've struggled and this isn't spoken about enough. And we feel really fortunate that you're willing to come on with us and share your story And we consider ourselves lucky, obviously, to call you a friend and a competitor and someone that we get to share the trail with. But I think people listening to this and ourselves included, honestly, like we know you as the runner you are today, the attorney you are today, the person you are today. And I'm wondering if you can take everyone kind of back in time to Logan, the soccer player, Logan, the climber, kind of where where your personal story intersects this topic for the audience. I think like it really started to kind of like rear itself back in high school. So in high school, I was prepping to go into soccer for college, D1, D2, um, as a center midfield. But every time I went to a, a camp or a team tryout, I was told I was too lean. Other coaches told me I was too big. And so at that time period, I was kind of stuck in this idea of like, oh, like what are what's the ideal image? Like what are these coaches looking for in an athlete? Because clearly it's just the way that you look. Like the first blush and like the first time you meet a coach, they're obviously sizing you up based on the way that you look. Um, and that kind of translates into your body type. So I was starting to fixate back in high school on soccer players and what soccer players looked like, like Cristiano Ronaldo, Ronaldinho, like what they look like. And then seeing that I didn't look like that and failing to recognize that these were men, not 16, 17 year old boys going through puberty who just were confused all over. Um, 
And so at that point in my life, I became fixated on body image uh, as a male athlete. And so from soccer, I went, um, I hurt my back ski racing, went into college, my sophomore through fresh, my freshman through sophomore year, I dabbled between soccer and rugby, obviously two very different body types, which then led to this like, <laughs> massive swing and like trying to gain weight, trying to lose weight, trying to gain weight. And it was in those swings that I started to actually struggle with bulimia because struggling to lose weight, I couldn't lose weight fast enough. And so it just became really easy to lose calories by, by purging, whether that was restrictive eating or actually making myself throw up between sessions and like after lunches and dinners with the team, because we were all trying to hit weight. And a lot of the times it was me and like maybe one or two other of my teammates in the bathroom. And we just didn't talk about it. Like this was just part of sport. And our coaches were, were happy because we were losing weight. We were starting to look the way that they wanted us to look. And they just didn't ask questions about how we were getting there. And so that was an interesting thing. Cause then when I started my junior year, I decided I wanted to spend my year abroad in China. So I moved to Shanghai for the year. And it was there that I started to realize that with no longer having an athletic outlook, I turned toward almost daily purging of my food because getting a workout in was hard. Getting any sort of training in was hard. My studies were really encompassing. China's not obviously a great place for running, especially living in Shanghai, where like nope. AQI is pretty much <clears throat> 200 plus daily for months on end. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was during that period where I started to really address and realize that I had an eating disorder and it wasn't an athletic goal. It was just a lack of control within my life. And so China was this really big revelation for me because I was able to actually admit the fact that, oh, now I'm struggling with an eating disorder. This isn't like, there's no longer an athletic goal that I'm training for. I can't guise this and I can't sweep this under the rug. This is now just a full-blown disorder. And it, I mean, obviously like it, it's one of those things where once you have it, you kind of always have it. It's like an addiction. Um, I think people oftentimes say like, oh, I'm over it. And I find that I disagree with that so much because I still don't think that I'm over any of these issues. I think I'm aware of it and know the signs and everything for when I'm starting to go back toward those cycles. But I don't think that I am, will ever be over that mentality of at whatever cost. And then the disordered eating and the eating disorders that follow that sort of like fixation when it comes to sport performance and body image issues. Um, and so, yeah, when I, when I was living in China, I decided to stop pursuing any sort of collegiate athletics for that reason. I thought it was a really unhealthy mindset. I was also a personal trainer, um, leading into that. That's how I was paying through college. And so I also stopped personal training for that very reason as well. I completely removed myself from all of my gyms, stopped updating my certs, everything like that, because I knew that I couldn't be around that environment because of the projection of my image issues, um, that it had on me and my eating. Um, and so coming back, I, I just got into climbing as Corinne said. So I came back and decided that I really want to reinvest my time and effort into the outdoor space. And at this time I still hadn't started running. Like running to me was still just a, a, a means to an end. It was a form of training, not the act itself. And I always viewed running as the devil, to be honest with you throughout like most of college. Uh, it was just like, why would you just run? Like there wasn't a goal. Like, what, what are we running to? What are we, like, why are we training? What are we running from, from oftentimes? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so like I started climbing and it, a lot of 
people I started to climb with, I started realizing also had disordered eating. I mean, I was showing up to the climbing gym to do like two or three hour sessions with my buddies. And after their session, they were, it had like six almonds and like a head of celery. And they're like, oh, well, this is just what I need for my macros. And I was like, oh, this seems normal. So of course I started trying like keto, um, veganism, things along those lines. And of course, I mean, nothing worked. Like I had injuries out the wazoo, like my hands always felt like I had a pulley issue going on. My knees felt like they were trashed. And so I started doing fast pack mountaineering because I was just thinking to myself, oh, climbing's trashing my body. And I had started this objective when I got back from living in China, um, taking on all of the Colorado 14ers and the classical traverses to raise money and awareness for Alzheimer's, a disease my grandfather passed away from. And I found like partnerships and sponsorships within Denver and decided I was going to take it all on in a calendar year. Um, so wrapping up my undergrad degree, working at a climbing gym and then doing this. And then that's actually how I got into running because I just, I needed to move faster on some days. Like there were some weekends where I had to hit four to five peaks. Some of them were trailhead to trailhead. And so I just literally had to just move faster. And the only way to do that is to run. And I found out I really liked it. Um, and then I did, my mom signed me up for an 11 K down in Moab, the Amasa or a 10 K, the Amasa back and got second with no training decided I still didn't want to run again. I'm like, that was cool. Like I was wearing like super baggy shorts and like knee high, like American flag socks. And I'm like, okay, I don't belong here. So I just moved on. And then a few weeks before the silver rush 50 miler in Leadville in 2017, I had a friend reach out to me and say, Hey, I signed you up. And so I had three weeks of training and then towed the line for my first 50 miler. Um, and it went terribly. As, as one would expect. I think I got into the halfway point at three and a half hours and finished just under 12. <laughs> Oof. Nice. Oh, yeah. And it's an out and back. So it's one of those things where there, there was no excuse. I just, I messed everything up. Um, but I knew that this was like what I wanted to do. Like this was, this, this had finally like trapped me and like, it felt like this was something that I could do long-term. And so that's how I kind of transitioned into running um, for that aspect. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering here, you, like you talk about recognizing this disordered eating pattern amongst the people that you were climbing with and you're not, so you've removed yourself from one environment. You're now in a new environment where the same thing is present and you feel that pull back to some old habits. What, as, as you moved into fast packing and then into running, did, was there anything in the community or in yourself? Did you feel those same Holes when you started doing that, or was there less pressure? Like, how did that, like, how did that mindset work there? Yeah. So there were actually more pulls because I felt more invested into this activity. And then, of course, we, I think we all kind of get trapped into the comparison game, especially within our sport, where the ideal image of a runner is somebody who looks like Jim Walmsley. It's just lean, like, barely, like, just all muscle. And who just floats and we rarely recognize anything else within that sport. I mean, if you look at the marathon distances too, like the, the people who are top performers are all a buck 30 and like six foot two. And so I became fixated again on like trying to hit this ideal image. So that's a lot to take in, right? This is a personal story, but 
there are some things that had to have st- stood out to you too. What what's going off in your head here about about Logan's personal experience when it comes to disordered eating? Yeah, first I was I was really surprised to to see to hear that it was almost like you know, like a team kind of normalized, completely normalized. And I was also really surprised to, um, and maybe this is just me being naive, but I've always thought that like sport can be so beautiful and that it's like, you know, it's like a meritocracy, like performance and like how you perform at a certain thing and, and a sport in particular at a certain role on a team, like that's what should tell you if you belong or not. But it was, it was like coaches telling you, you didn't fit the part. And I thought that that was more of something that happened in women's sport only. Um, so that was really surprising to me and the, and like the team kind of mentality. And I mean, the fact that they didn't talk about it doesn't surprise me, but the, um, yeah, that was, that was, that stood out to me. Yeah. I'm like angry at the coaches about this. (laughs) Like I'm so ferociously, angry that, and I know that there are coaches out there who are still like this, who are still coaching youth sports and college sports as we, as we are all too aware of as stories continue to break on this. And it's just like, I'm, I'm so angry on the inside that people like Logan, like ourselves have had to go through this and knowing athletes who are still going through this, like it break it breaks my heart. Like I'm so I'm devastated for these athletes. Oh yeah. And I mean, I can't get over the fact of like, it's transcending all of the sports that he's ever tried since high school. Right. And so he's going from soccer where he's being told he's too lean or too big, right? Like complete contradictions and then transitioning to doing two sports that like exhibit very different, um, forms of athleticism and very different kinds of body where he's trying to get through these extremes and then almost transitioning through a realization period where he's realizing he's thinking of, of dieting and fueling poorly and then entering another sport that he might think is safe. Right. And then realizing that, Oh, nope, this sport is also messed up and let's move to another sport. And Oh, this one might be triggering as well. And, and how do you escape it? And, and I just, I just feel like it's just so glaringly obvious that this this research in this space is so underrepresented where it's saying three to 70% across, you know, any sort of sport and that lean sports are more represented in males. Like I now question that as we don't know the extent of this, right? Like no idea. We have different sports and they're all prevalent. Right. So, wow. We, we don't know anything is basically what this comes down to. And the science needs to catch up on this because I think it, it probably tracks similarly to like mental health disease and disorders in male and female populations. We know from some research that it's definitely underreported in the male population, particularly if you look at like suicide risk, mm-hmm. like males like make up a much larger percent of suicides yet have a much lower diagnosis of depression. So there's all these like these through lines where you're like, oh, cool. This like, this is probably very similar where it's underdiagnosed. It's underrepresented in the literature, but it's we're probably on much more equal playing, like on not not to say it's an equal playing field between males and females in this, but it's like not not the playing field that any of us want to be on. Let's put it that way. Um, that it's probably as prevalent in male athletics as it is in female athletics. We just don't hear about it. And I think it's also interesting too. And it's like there's maybe more commonality with how we you know, as I mean, I say we because we're all coaches, but also if we're looking to, you know, getting women and men into sport that coach is so important. And so kind of what we we talked about is, you know, how, how do we continue getting young girls and women in in sport, you know, throughout their lives? I mean, this same conversation can be applicable to, to boys as well. 
Yeah, this is a good way to, de- to derail a lifelong love of sport in in any athlete, male male or female. And it's so. so sad too because I feel like someone like Logan and I know a lot of us as peers too. It's like in run in running, we're very hardworking, and a lot of like you know athletes like we can be on like this the type A and you know like the overachievers. And I feel like that really tapped into like Logan because you know he's an attorney, he's very driven, and I think that you know, then he, it turned into like almost obsession and focusing on something else that could, that that turned into so, you know, so detrimental from a health point of view. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the, Oh, I'm just happy to hear that he recognizes this, right. Like, like, like he starts to pick up the through line on his own, which I think is, is important as well. Right. Like Mm -hmm. that, like he, he can recognize it in himself. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly where I was going to go. And then I was kind of thinking like this whole time I'm nodding my head along, right? Like you can relate to every single thing he says from either personal experience or experience you've heard of others, mostly female. And so it's, it's just kind of shocking how, how parallel these stories actually are. Um, and then I have to think like, okay, well, females are now talking about it, but you know, we swept it under the rug for years. So then I guess now I'm questioning like, why would we expect men to talk about it when it's, it's even less publicized for them? Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, how he thought about this. So it'd be cool to like cut to that clip around why he thinks it's not talked about in men. Male athletes and male athletic teams don't ever talk about eating disorders as a, a topic. I know growing up, our soccer coaches and our high school coaches and even some of my collegiate coaches told us signs to look for in female athletes, but they never told us signs to look for in male athletes or even address that this was an issue within male athletes. I remember sitting down and having conversations with um, my high school coaches and my club coaches and ODP coaches and them saying, okay, if you see these signs in women, they probably have an eating disorder and we need to address it. Never once was it, if you see these signs in men, they probably have an eating disorder or disordered eating. We need to address it. It was just, we never talked about it. It was just do whatever it takes to be the best you can be and no questions asked. So I know that we all had our own personal opinions about why this might not be talked about in male athletics, but is that like, I, I was totally floored by Logan's perspective on that. And that how he had had coaches who were like, no, 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 like this happens in women, you know, here's how you look out for it, but like, don't worry about yourself, like performance, 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 like what, like that blew my mind. I'm what, I'm curious to know, like how you all felt listening to that about like that, that I, I was floored that any coach was like 50% of the way there, but like totally missed the other 50% of the population. I mean, yeah, but also I think kind of the, maybe the way he described it, like kind of like dismissing it, it's like, okay, you watch out for this in women and then this is what you do. And then you kind of move on and then it, it's fine. I think it's, it's still kind of like the surface level. It's like, there's, it's like, you know, the iceberg, like 90% of it is like under there. And uh, we're just going to talk about the 10, but we're good. Right. Cause we see the iceberg and it, that's kind of what I thought, but <laughs> no, a hundred percent. I think that's such a great, a great reaction. Keely, what do you think? Oh my gosh. Yeah. My jaw was on the floor. Cause I was like, I had never had that discussion with any coach that I ever had. So I, I mean, I commend the coaches for being 50% there, but yeah, they were clearly still lacking because then they were like, and and you have to get to this level and I don't care what you do. And then like, it's like when it all costs, cause you're a male and you can do it, but look, look at your female counterparts. And it's just like, that's such watch out for them. <laughs> watch out for them. That's, I guess 
the patriarchy just oh, really in place there. I yeah, I think that the dismissiveness of it all and this idea that it's like it's showing weakness to to broach these topics, to talk about these topics that aren't taboo, but then also to be sharing that like having this conversation with a friend or a peer and then being like, oh yeah, no, me, me too. Like I'm actively going through this. They're so like, oh, oh yeah, me too. Like I totally had that experience in high school or college. And you're just like, wait, what? Like, why are you guys having this conversation? And then it ends there. Like, why doesn't it go further than that? Yeah, absolutely. And and I feel like this just kind of opens up the the like can of worms of like, how are people supposed to even think there's red flags around this? If they're, they're told to just win at all costs, like they're not going to take any sort of red flag and think that it means they need to back off the gas. They're going to just push through to get to that, like that level. And I feel like that's where men just kind of ignore all those red flags. Yeah. And so it'd be curious. I think we should cut to this clip of Logan talking about it. We asked him, you know, looking back on his experience, what kind of red flags could he pick up from that? From that time. Oh, looking back, uh, the first few years of running, when I was really struggling with all of these issues, I constantly had these weird injuries. I had no sex drive. I was logging big weeks. I wasn't getting faster. I couldn't lose weight to save my life, no matter like what I tried. And so for me, it's like, okay, something I'm doing is not right. So I kept changing my diet instead of instead of just looking at my my diet and saying, Oh, I'm being too restrictive in my eating. Instead, I tried to add other restrictions on top of that and didn't want to admit to myself that I wasn't fueling properly. And uh, it was one of those things where I, yeah, just couldn't lose weight. My training had plateaued. My performance was actually decreasing. I had no sex drive at all. I was sleeping terribly, which I chalked up to the stress of grad school, a move, trying this out. I thought I had overtraining syndrome because I was also climbing and running still. And I just, I kept finding an excuse to overlook what it probably, what it, what actually was. I was justifying some of the most self-destructive actions I've ever had in my life under the guise of trying to perform or my own well-being. And so I felt like I, I had like cut myself short and in cutting myself short, had cut those around me short. Cause I wasn't able to put forth my best self or like my best performance or like my best side for as like students, because like, of course I was going through brain fog and like all of the other signs of overtraining. I probably wasn't the best partner at the time either because I was constantly depressed. I had no sex drive. I was just pissed off all the time and I was getting more pissed off because I wasn't performing. And so it's just this vicious cycle that affected <laughs> everybody around me. Uh, it was all because of my own choices. Yeah. Uh, it was just hard to admit that like, oh yeah, I kind of messed up quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> and we're laughing because this is just so relatable, right? Like this does not sound like anything that we are not strange, that we are strangers to. Like this is very similar for like, I think experiences for myself in the past as well. So I feel like we are all nodding along throughout that section, right? We all picked out the red flags in his initial story, setting this all up. But what kind of stood out to you both? I know that he, you know, he mentioned some, there's some, there's some parallels here between the male experience and the female experience. And Hilly, I know that you've got some thoughts about this. And I'm wondering if you can just elaborate a little bit there about, you know, what, what kind of cues are you picking up on in this story? Yeah. So one of the biggest things is that, you know, he, he mentioned that, you know, as women, we kind of have a, a cue, right. Every month, 
um, kind of, it, it is an appropriate cue if we're like under fueling, right. You know, it can cause shifts and, and dysregulation in our menstrual cycle, but men don't really have this cue, but I think it's actually something that they do. And something that he also mentioned is this idea of, you know, no sex drive. And, um, I mean, he also mentioned some other things that maybe happen later in the, in, 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 um, kind of down the line, right. As you're kind of get deeper into relative energy deficiency, but not his ability to like, not really regulate weight. Um, if he was, you know, gaining weight or not able to like, you know, his body was kind of stuck in this place. Um, but I think the first thing, the first cue would be the testosterone, you know, and lower levels of testosterone. Um, this is actually linked to, you know, higher levels of cortisol and, you know, that they're all of these, these pathways are kind of are, are so fine tuned in there and they're linked to one another. Um, so this hormone dis, uh, you know, dysregulation and, um, it's manifested as in a, in a actual symptom of a lower sex drive and libido. And I mean, it might be an uncomfortable conversation, but it's an important one to have, you know, I feel like all of us, if we're coaches, like, you know, uh, that's something we can talk about. Yeah, and, and women and women experience a decrease in sex drive too. Yeah. If you've got overtraining or relative energy mm-hmm. deficiency in sport. Mm-hmm. Um, I but- also think this is related to mood too, right? Totally. There's mood, mood dysregulations, mm-hmm. right? With that hormonal dysregulation. For those of you who are listening to this and not watching it, um, Hillary's using lots of hand gestures to describe hormonal pathways and hormonal dysregulation. So I could write a, I could do a flow chart. I've just actually been reading this book. Um, it's about testosterone. And so, um, by Carol Hoover, it's so great. It's called T I'm learning so much about, I'm learning so much about it. And also, I mean, there's a bunch of, is this the one with the too. really cool subtitle? The who? I think I think I might have this book. Um, She's pulling right it out here. of a pile. What's the subtitle? It's well, uh, the story of testosterone, the hormone that dominates and divides us. Oh, I've got another one. I'll send you another it's, testosterone book. It's really good. We'll and link so I'm just, it in I'm the show notes, much. guys. Yeah, we'll link fun. it in the yeah. show notes. So maybe I'll put a little hand sketched thing or like <laughs> some little flow charts in there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you just highlighted the biggest point, though, Hilly, is that he's experiencing lower testosterone, which is, it's, it's, it's resulting in this cascade of effects that are very obvious when you can look back at them, but I feel like they're not talked about and that the lower sex drive and maybe plateauing in your fitness and having this brain fog and feeling like you're a miserable human and not a good partner and all these things, like people just attribute it to training, right? Kind of like the females where I want to train so hard that I stop getting my menstrual cycle. They think it's, it's like, going to make them more fit. So they think all of this suffering and all of these changes to who they are as a human is like going to result in an increase in fitness. And I really like that. He's showcasing that it didn't. And, and it took him a while to like realize that, but he basically was saying that like all these things didn't amount to better performance, even though that was his only goal. Yeah, no, it made him, it made him a sluggish human, both mentally and physically his grades suffered during that time period. Like that, I think is a super interesting point. And, you know, kind of there's new research that, that we've been talking about, you know, just kind of pointing at this again, that they've, they've actually kind of discussed this link between quote unquote overtraining syndrome and red S and the idea is that actually like, it's really hard to overtrain, but it's really easy to underfuel, particularly if you're training hard. And so that they have a lot of commonalities, a lot of common symptoms. And I think most of us attribute this fatigue, this sluggishness, this kind of, you know, all like this, this brain fog, this weight gain, all these issues potentially to our training, just like losing your period. Like, oh, I'm going to train so hard that I lose my period. You attribute it to training when really it's, it's attributed to not fueling properly. 
it should be attributed to not fueling properly. So recognizing that, that it like, it's not helping your performance. It's actually worth like making your performance worse. You know, you, you stagnant and or decrease performance, I think is a really important take home message from that. Yeah. And another just little like science kind of tidbit there. I mean, hormone, hormone, you know, dysregulate, like misregulation or any of kind of this dysfunction, it has impacts on the brain, like, you know, estrogen and testosterone. So that's also something, you know, that, that it's all related, right? Totally. Yeah. And I think just going back to the low energy is like, I appreciate every single diet out there. And I think if you're doing a diet for really, really solid reasons, I like support it. I think it was really cool that he was saying he kept using food and diets as a guise and that he was doing all of these different diets because he thought that they would result in performance. When at the end of the day, it was just another way for him to control what he was putting into his body. And it wasn't like he was doing the diet for a really good reason and making sure it was a way for him to get more nutrients. It was a way for him to control and like cut out nutrients. And I think that as a red flag is really powerful to recognize in yourself is to ask yourself, like, why am I eating this certain way? Is it because it's actually going to help me and it's actually beneficial? Or is it because I think by restricting these certain things, um, it's going to make me a better, better performer. Yeah. It's that it's that I need control. And so I'm like implementing a restriction on myself, on my diet. And I think that mentioning that and recognizing this, this food, this food as guys, this diet as guys, is really, really important. And that might resonate with some of us. I think that we've all experienced that personally um, to some degree. And it's it's really important to recognize that, you know, even if it's subtle, that many of us can probably fall into disordered eating patterns that we think are performance oriented, that we think are, that we tell ourselves, maybe we don't think, we tell ourselves they're performance oriented. We tell ourselves they're for our health, for our well-being for the planet, for the animals, for our maybe gluten intolerance, whatever it might be like, and really it's us putting a restriction on something that we can control when maybe we don't feel like we can control other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes we just need to know or be like faced with the reality that other people are going through. And that maybe you think all of the athletes that are better athletes than you don't eat either. And they are restricting calories and they're eating a vegan diet or they're eating this diet and they don't eat much. And I mean, I know I've definitely experienced this where you all of a sudden have this aha moment where you're like, oh, I'm the one doing it completely wrong. And I think Logan has this experience, right? And so I think here we should really just cut to the clip he had where he was kind of eating dinner with one of his idols in the sport and had this realization like, oh, I'm doing this so wrong. Yeah. So like my I like aha moment came like two years ago. Um, I did a run. I was back in Boulder visiting um, Matt and Daniels and Drew Holman and mm we did a run around the res and it was like this 13 mile run. And at that time I was doing the airman fasting thinking like, Oh, this is what's going to make me a better athlete. And I remember drew had a dip, but Matt and I went and grabbed breakfast. And so I, I think I ordered like an egg white omelet with like sliced tomatoes after a 13 mile run. Cause I'm like, Oh, I'm going to be healthy. Like I'm going to eat like this isn't within my window. So I'm going to be healthy. And at that time, like I had this like foot injury that hadn't gone away. My knees were constantly hurting. I was starting to like again, go through what I was thinking, like was overtraining syndrome. And I sat down and I think Matt ordered a extra large Dr. Pepper, two sides of toast, a stack of pancakes and like a breakfast skillet. And I was looking at him just being like, what the hell? 
you're you weigh as much as I do. You just consume like 5,000 calories. And I asked him, I just straight up asked him, like, is that how you eat? He's like, yeah, like unashamed. Just, yeah, this is how I've always eaten. And I was just like, oh my God, I've done everything wrong. Because here I am looking at like arguably like one of the best runners in the sport and one of like the fastest runners. And I'm just like, oh, holy crap. Like my eating is so, so different compared to him. And he's not trying to hide it. Like he's unapologetic about it. And he's just like, yeah, like this is how I eat. He's like, you have to eat to run. I'm like, but what about like, wait, he's like, your body adapts. Mm -hmm. And at that point I was just like, oh my God, I need to switch things up. And that, that to me was like this like epiphany moment where I'm like, I have done things so wrong. Um, and so like, I started to incorporate, like I broke through, I broke IF started eat like eating more regularly, which was hard. Cause yeah, you eat. And then you feel this like sense of shame. Cause you're like, Oh my God, I'm eating and I'm eating more. So of course I'm going to gain weight. And my body did gain weight at the first, like, I think it took me about eight months. Um, I like gained a little bit of weight. I felt terrible. Like I had this like sense of like shame where like, I wasn't wearing, like, I wasn't going shirtless on my runs. I was just like, kind of like oh, this, this sucks. Like I'm, I'm gaining weight, but I also started to notice at the end of this like eight month period, as I started to eat more consistently and eat more that my performance was starting to increase, that my injuries weren't there anymore, that I was starting to feel better, that like my sex drive was slowly coming back, which like, I think as a male is something that I focused on because like, unlike females, you guys have your once a month reminder about like your nutrition. That's like pretty easy to like acknowledge. We don't have that as a male. Mm-hmm. So our sex drive is one of the things that like you see is like one of the top symptoms of overtraining is a lack of that. But I think it's also one of the top symptoms of a lack of fueling. So I think in males, that's why I fixate on it. It's like, if that's starting, if you're starting to experience that, maybe it's because you're not getting enough nutrition. So obviously your testosterone levels are off, your hormones are off and that impacts everything. Um, but then I started, I'm like, okay, eating's fine. So I started eating more and more and more. And then I started to swing back down in weight where my body, my metabolism caught up to what I was feeding it. And it's, I started to lose weight again. So like, I went from like trying to fixate on this ideal image and doing whatever it took to get there to just being like, you know what, I'm just going to eat and perform and see if I, the more I eat, the better I perform. Like, I'm not going to run without water anymore. I'm not going to try to run so hard that I throw up. I'm not going to do a 20 mile run with no nutrition because I'm trying to lose five pounds. Like, no, I'm going to like fuel my body. Like, God forbid, I actually do the things that like everyone tells me to do. And lo and behold, like my injury started to go away. I became a better, like my grade started to improve, which was kind of wild to me. Um, Cause that's a very clear indicator of like mental capacity. Um, my mood increase like became better. My weight dropped despite the fact that I was eating a few thousand calories more a day. Um, and so it was just like this while it took a year though, of this constant battle of, am I doing too much? Am I not doing enough? Like, what if I don't ever lose this weight? Am I just like becoming just like this spot? Like this, is this the body image that I'm just going to have? And is that okay? Mentally, am I okay with that? And then it started to slowly transition where the body adapted to what I was feeding it. And then everything else in my life started to come back around. Um, and you could see that holistically it was starting to, to heal a lot of the injuries and holes that I had dug for myself in the past. Wow. I'm getting chills. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say that that's that connection between, uh, your, your like health over performance. And it turns out that health equals performance. Yeah. Um, at, like once you like, let your body do what it's supposed to do. And so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, through this, like through this process. And obviously I think people are always in recovery from this kind of stuff, as you mentioned 
as you alluded to early on, that it's not a thing where it's like, oh, I'm over it. Like pat, pat yourself on the back. You know that you're going to deal with this for the rest of your life more than likely. And I'm wondering in this process of, you know, of nourishing your body, of fueling your body, of holistically getting your body back to this place where it it is healthy. It's healthy. You can run. Um, how has, has your relationship with, with food changed though, along with that, right? Like, or are you still constantly fighting those demons? My relationship has changed. I mean, again, it, it is perspective. Like now, instead of eating um, to s- just survive and because it was a necessity, it's now eating to perform. Um, and that obviously like, and being, having a little bit more self grace with yourself and being saying like, it's okay, like to overeat, like, it's okay to give your body what it needs. It's like, you will burn it off. You're going to run. It's not, it's just not going to sit there and you're not going to gain weight. Um, I think my relationship has gotten better because I've viewed, I've come to view food as not the demon, but one of the like key necessities to proper training. Um, and like just a proper livelihood, whether it's like mental capacity, whether it's my relationships with people, like it allows properly fueling has allowed me to put my best foot forward mm-hmm. and food has become a means, a catalyst for that. Like it's one of the necessary things for those things in my life that I want to achieve. It's no longer the demon that's holding me back, um, or something that like I want to exercise control over constantly but also recognizing that like when certain times in my life come up where there's like a lot of change or uncertainty like this this summer when I had my uh Achilles injury and when I was diagnosed with my autoimmune disease I started to slip back into almost restrictive eating because I felt like I was out of control and it was easy for me to like clam up and think okay well since I'm not running since I'm not biking since now, like my body is just doing whatever it's deciding to do and attacking itself. I'm just going to limit my eating. And then after a few days, I'm like, Oh no, this is exactly the issues that I struggled with years ago. This is okay. Like eat, you have to eat to heal. Like the body needs fuel and like nutrients to heal itself. And then it was just like, okay, everything we're doing now is to heal. And so, yeah, like it's one of the, it was a reminder that this is never going to completely disappear. Um, but it's easier now to recognize when it does reappear and then how to just like, con- like just to remind yourself, Oh no, it's okay. It's like, mm-hmm. it'll come it'll get like that feeling will come and pass. And then we, we can move on. I'm wondering, is there anything that like for people at home who are listening to this and maybe they're recognizing this in themselves, or maybe they're recognizing this in someone they care about, right? A significant other, a teammate, a training partner, um, a child, right? We have parents that listen to our show. What can you say to them, you know, to help them care for someone as they recognize these red flags? Oh, that, that's so hard. I mean, cause obviously this is such a, a personal issue and like, no one wants to be confronted with this. I mean, like, I know it took me years to even come to the terms with the fact that I had an eating disorder. Like I, I had all the signs and I was telling myself, no, it's okay. No, it's okay. No, it's okay. It's just one more time. Like, it's just, like it's, it's fine. I feel bad. So I'm just going to make myself throw up to feel better. And I don't have an eating disorder. Um, and so it's one of those things where it's like, obviously you're looking down the barrel of the gun. You're like, mm, it's not, it's not true. Like if you're in this state of self-denial, which I think a lot of people probably are in when it comes to, to eating and disordered eating, because it's, it's something that it's, it's such a vulnerable topic. Like it's truly like you, when you admit this, it's, 
it's just like society has told us this is such a bad thing. Like this is, this only happens to females and that this only happens to like those of us who are, who are weak. And even like within females, it's like, Oh, like there's usually like an underlying mental thing. So it's like, see what there's going on in their life that would cause them to do this as compared to like, no, this is like stress from performance and the sport itself that we're now associating with eating disorders. And so it's so multifaceted, but I think if you're, if you're seeing these signs and symptoms in somebody that you care about or yourself, I think it, it just comes to like being able to sit down with that person and vocalize it and just ask them like, Hey, what, like, what are your goals with like this eating? Like, what, like, why are you doing what you're doing with fueling is, do you think that there's a better way? And like, actually get them thinking about it. I think the worst thing you could do is just to sit down and tell them, Hey, I think you have an eating disorder because chances are they're just going to pull back. I know if somebody had said that to me, I would have just been like, no, screw you. I don't have an eating disorder. Like you don't know what you're talking about. And then would have just never listened to that person again. And then would have put up more barriers in my mind as compared to sitting down and having a conversation with them about why are you doing this? And then actually having them think through what they see in, in their eating patterns or their issues that are good because usually it comes through that sort of self-reflection where you start to realize at least personally that, oh, this isn't healthy. This isn't sustainable. I'm saying that I'm not eating carbs because I'm keto because I'm trying to become fat adapted and then ask, oh, well, how has it impacted your training? Or like, how is it impacting you? Like, do you feel better? Do you feel worse? Like what's going on? And actually try to have them really think about how their diet is impacting them as compared to just immediately assuming that they have an eating disorder. Um, and then just also saying, well, I'm here to talk, like, I'm here to listen. If you ever want to talk about this, let me know, uh, just being available to them and saying that it's okay to talk about these things. And if you're an athlete who sees this in a teammate and if you struggled with, um, an eating disorder or any sort of disorder eating it, well, just say like, Hey, I've, I've been there or I've had this, which is why I asked, but I which is always an interesting thing to do when you're having a conversation about this sort of issue. I've, I've experienced this personally, maybe not with food, but with other, with other things, right. Needing to be shown, needing to have this behavior modeled to me to have an aha moment. I'm wondering if either one of you, I know Keely, before we just played that clip, you said that you, you've had that aha moment of being like, Oh, actually I'm, I'm the one who might not be doing this right. Hilly, have you had any personal experience with things like this? Oh yeah. I mean, so I remember, so Zach Miller has been a teammate of mine for a while now and we've been good friends. I, during one of my many recoveries, I would go up and hike to bar camp and, you know, kind of help up there when he was living up there and being a caretaker. And I remember one of Zach's um, mantras was eating is training. And I remember I'd like, you know, go to, to, you know, to, to lunch with him or dinner and whatever. And you know, I mean, he was mindful of, you know, eating healthy foods, but like he was eating enough and he, what, he wouldn't shy away from that. And I just remember, you know, he, like, we went out to this place in Colorado Springs, like a guy, like got a big burrito and he was just like, you know, he like would like licking his plate clean because he couldn't like leave it, you know, like leave it. I don't know. He didn't leave a morsel on there, but I just remember that aha moment when I was just like, all right, if I'm going to be running, like we did the same run that day. Right. Um, like we went up Pike's peak. And I was like, if I'm going to be running like the same training, right, it might not be the same day in and day out, but like, that's a big lesson to me. And I think that was a, 
a huge aha moment for me because it's like, you know, if, if I'm a, you know, a female, it's like, oh, I, I shouldn't eat as much as the men, but it's like, well, you know, like they're doing something right. You're doing so. the same training. You might exactly. as well be eating as much, right? Yeah. And it was just something that stuck with me for a long time. Um, and yeah. Yeah. I think it's just really hard to conceptualize how many calories or how many, how much nutrients we need in this sport. And so sometimes I think you do just need the aha moment from someone who's finally figured it out and for you to be like, Oh crap, I'm doing this wrong. Yeah. And then to see it pay off, right. To see, to be like, Oh my goodness, I'm fueling my body properly and it's doing what I'm asking of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm like, you're running better. You're a better human. You're, you know, you're better to your significant other. You're better in school. You're better at your job, like all these things, right. That you're like, wow, that was really all tied to food. And it's really easy in our sport, I think, to slip into unintentionally, obviously in Logan's story, this is very intentional over and over again, right? Like he, he has these intrusive thoughts about diet and about his body and he's actively having to counter it, actively having to fight against it. But you can be in this state without without being in a in a major state of an eating disorder or disordered eating. It could be much more subtle than that. It's just it's really hard to keep up with the dietary demands mm-hmm. of going for a twenty mile run or a thirty mile run or being at altitude and doing that activity. Or it's cold. I mean, it's not cold here by most people's standards, but like being in a wintry environment, you're you know like your body needs fuel, you're taxing your body. And I think we've gotten, I've had to learn. I think Logan's learned this a little bit too, or is working on learning this, right? There's this notion that food is fuel. And we've all talked about this, right? We've all had this, this conversation that food is fuel. And we actually, we had a a listener that works for Opal, um, which is a eating disorder treatment center in Seattle, reach out to us that said, Hey, food is so much more than fuel. And that's really important. And I, I can recognize in my own eating that I think that I've used the mantra of food is fuel to probably protect myself from starving myself. Um, and recognizing that although I can make it a positive, the other side of that's really negative, right? By needing to, oh, if, if food is fuel, if my car, if my, my gas tank is empty, I need to top it off. Like that can be a really unhealthy mindset too. And so although we might use that at times in our life to to, to save us, to make us healthier than we once were. And help by healthier, I mean, well, I mean, medically well, mm-hmm. um, it can, that can have a, that can have a negative and food is so much more than fuel, right? It's happiness, it's sorrow, it's joy. It's, it's everything. It can be everything. And so I think it's, I think for those listening, it's really important to recognize that yes, we can have these mantras, but there, there isn't, there's a, a slippery slope on the other side of these mantras. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think, especially if you are in that slippery slope where you're only attributing food to fuel, you, you will automatically be in a deficit after certain days where you maybe don't attribute your fitness or how much exercise you did to needing more fuel, but that's not why we fuel all the time. Right. And so we need to be able to disassociate those things and really just appreciate food for what it is, because like the best thing we can do is like cook a really nutritious meal and just share it with so many people that we love and just like absorb those nutrients and be so grateful for them because they are what fuels us and they are what make us human. Or just eat some freaking nachos. Don't demonize anything, totally. right? No. Eat, but also with eat this the white eating. bread, eat the nachos, eat the ice cream. My dad is like, just no, like, I feel like he demonized food my whole life, right? Like you couldn't have white rice, we had to have brown rice. We need whole wheat, everything, blah, blah, blah. But like, don't demonize it. 
just enjoy it, eat it, share right. it. Right. And sorry for cutting you off there. No, you're good. The other thing that I want to mention too, with the danger that, that, that I've thought of too, is like fuel is fuel, food. The food is fuel. Is that, you know, then what happens if I'm resting? Well, then what happens when I'm resting? Then I, then I don't need the fuel. And I think that's where it got, I think I've thought that too. And it's where it's gotten a little bit dangerous and I can see that in kind of Logan's story too. And, and this is kind of like anecdotal, but I think, you know, like Corinne, you mentioned, you know, other people kind of showing the way and like asking these important questions and and showing you, okay, like, well, this, like, you know, maybe let's talk about it this way, or like, this is how I, this is, this is what I do when I rest. Right. I mean, speaking of rest, Dylan is probably, I admire how well that guy can rest and it's like inspiring. It's like, I, I aspire to that, but Corinne, I remember you, I was struggling with this and I was coming back from, from injury. And I thought I had to play catch up and that I rested so much and that I needed to, you know, I needed to, to not waste time. Like I was already behind and you were really encouraging to me saying, okay, like let's evaluate. Why are you feeling anxious, Hillary? Like if you need to rest, like your body, your body needs this. Right. And, and so that was just like a little tidbit that you've done that in several points in my, in like buildups or like, like Hillary, you need to taper. You don't need to cram in training. Right. Like, and so I think it's, it's having those conversations, those honest ones about people who see kind of this behavior and they're like, Hey, I love you. Let's talk about this. And so you kind of don't go down this rabbit hole. Yeah. Those peer mentors, right? Like when we think of mentors, we think of these like people who are older, wiser, better than we are. And really it's, it's your friends, it's your support system. It's your, it's the people who see you day in and day out and say, Hey, you know, what's, what's going on. But as Logan mentions, it's not, you gotta be, you gotta be tactful, right? You can't just go in with a butter knife or a butcher knife or whatever kind of knife you want to bring to this fight, but you can't, you can't go in. Like it's, it's one of those things, right? Like I can, I can feel myself recoiling when someone wants to talk to me about something I don't want to talk about. Right. And if you're in this state, do you really want to talk about it? I totally felt that when Logan's like, I don't, I'm going to put my guards up. I'm going to put all my, all my layers, all my, all my guard up because I don't want to have this conversation with you. So I think that was really powerful to hear like, okay, this is a human. How do we have this conversation with someone? So I hope you all appreciated that conversation we had with Logan. I know that it was, a, I think it was a hard interview. Keely and I walked out of it going like, Ooh, we had to exhale afterwards because it was, it was very powerful, but we know that this is going to, this is going to impact some of you, right? It's, it impacted us and we hope that you can take meaningful tidbits from Logan's story. And if you're struggling, reach out, reach out to that support system, reach out to us, reach out to your loved ones um, who might be struggling as well, because this is something that there's a lot of shame tied up in it, but we're, we're here for each other. We're here for you. Um, you're heard, you're seen. So continue to, to lean on us and to lean on the, the support system you have around you. Before we let you go for today, we know this has been an exceedingly long podcast, but hopefully you're out on a long run or a very long commute or something, and you've got us in your ears instead. And so we're going to tie things up today with a little society slam, and Hilly is chomping at the bit to bring this one to you. It's just because it made me laugh so hard. And I'm really hoping that you both have some good advice because I didn't really have the best advice. So, um, so I got a message from someone and, um, she said to me, so this is a, it's a question mildly related to, uh, the, the, um, our episode on unwanted attention on trails. She said, how do you prevent or minimalize owls 
Yeah, the bird. Yes. From attacking your ponytail. I've been attacked many times. Yeah, she says a number of women in my community have been swooped at the past few weeks, and it's a bit frightening. I've had that happen too. Um, And it was from a hawk. So it was like really scary. Um, And I said, like, I mean, a headlamp or a bell? Like, are you running at dusk? And she said, she said she has, she has been, um, it was after dusk and it, and and she was wearing a headlamp. So maybe it is the headlamp. So I found, I found this happened to me in Bellingham a lot at Lake Patton in particular. I'd get swooped by owls there and I had a much smaller, I'd like double buns. I had really short hair at the time. So I'd have like my top bun and my second bun. And I was like, they must look like little tails. And I got swooped all the time running there around dusk. So it's like, there's a timing issue there, right? Potentially. Right. Um, I don't know, wearing a hat, like wearing a lower, a lower ponytail and braiding it or something. I think, I mean, not to say that you need to, not to say it's how you look or you're dressing a certain way. And that's why you're getting attacked by this owl, but I'm asking you to change your hairstyle and hope to avoid the owl attack. I'm really sorry that I'm putting this on you and not the owl and making light of it. But, um, that, that is what I found worked for me in, in running in owl territory. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but we have a very, very notoriously dangerous owl population in Portland that like to attack runners. And they've attacked my male friends that don't have ponytails. So oh, I'm not no. sure that is the best advice. I would suggest wearing a helmet um, <laughs> or <laughs> or running with poles because I am terrified of owls. <laughs> For instance, Hardly one time- jugular. <laughs> yeah, one time I was running and there was an owl sitting on the ground looking at me. And- that is the t- most terrifying thing I've ever seen on a run because why would the owl be sitting on the ground and then its head just swiveled with me as I ran by. And so I don't have good advice, but I feel your pain because it's terrifying. Like I would rather be attacked by a cougar than an owl. And I'll yeah. be on air saying that. <laughs> we have, we have a, we run into more turkey vultures, turkeys, turkey vultures, and, and coyotes um, around these parts. But I've definitely had some really weird turkey vulture encounters where they're like, they've got it. There's like a, a deer kill or something that they're being protective of. And I've had to wait on the trail until someone else came by. So the three and, and these two women came by and the three of us yelled and ran past the birds together because birds of prey are very scary. Like I didn't think yeah. I had a fear of birds, but I am, I find them terrifying. They've got claws and, and sharp beaks. So maybe safety in numbers as well could be beneficial there, right? Ooh, bring I, a tennis racket. There you go. Yeah. A little badminton, maybe badminton, something smaller, a little yeah. lighter, but um, yeah, that's, that is hilarious and terrifying. I'm really so, sorry that we're not providing great insight into that. On a similar note, I, we had, we had some good responses from our cat calling trail etiquette episode. And one that I got um, from a listener says, hi, love the latest episode where you all talked about getting cat called, especially when alone. I've never tried this, but one response my girlfriends and I have talked about is just to say, that makes me really uncomfortable. It's not aggressive. It takes out the sarcasm. It takes out any sarcasm also decreases the perceived aggression and potentially, and then in all caps, hopefully would actually teach the person something they probably haven't thought about. I intend to try it in my next in the next situation I run into, hopefully not for a while. And I was like, I know it's so logical. Like that's kind of what I think you have to do too. Like, hey, like, no, thank you. That makes me uncomfortable. Um, Amelia Boone, I think, posted one today that said something like of like, I hope you get well. I hope you get well. Like, or like, I hope you're just like you're getting the help you need. Um, it's hard, right, to not be combative, but also to to respond appropriately to these un, like unwanted. Um, advances out on the trail, um, different than an owl, but I kind of like that. It's very simple, non-aggressive, non-sarcastic, just being like, Hey, like, dude, that makes me really uncomfortable. 
and just kind of going on your way. And maybe they sit with it. Maybe they don't. It's probably not as satisfying as saying something really snarky, which is what I'm drawn to. But um, I, I liked that. I liked hearing that from someone else there and saying, okay, this is what I'm going to try the next time I'm in this situation. So thank you for, for sending that in. I do think that that is valid, the non-aggressive, non-sarcastic, but hopefully meaningful approach to unwanted advances. Keely does not have a society slam for us. She's that's okay. She, no one reached out to her. I'm sure she's got nothing oh. in her inbox. That's that's definitely not true. People that's reach really out to all true. of us, but that's okay. So with that being said, thank you all so much for joining us for episode 10. We had a lot of time making it. We know it's a new format for everyone. And we hope that you enjoyed it too. So give us your feedback. Did did we nail having someone on? And discussing it and bringing you some new information and some new insight that we couldn't personally provide, but we really thought was important for our community to listen to. So slide into our DMs, hit us up on Instagram and Twitter and email and whatever else. You can find us everywhere. Um, We can't wait to talk to you next time.